Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? I am doing great, man. Uh, this was a fun interview and I am actually getting super stoked for a Drinks in Quarantine live stream that I'm doing in less than an hour with uh, some real rock stars on the macro side of things. Um, so... If you guys are listening to this and you haven't watched that yet, you should definitely check it out on Bitcoin Magazine YouTube. But this was a really awesome interview. We had Preston from the Prismatic team, one of the key guys that is working on uh, one of the potentially top um, ETH2 clients. Uh, so uh, for the Bitcoiners out there, I think you should listen to this podcast because you're going to learn a lot more about what's happening uh, in ETH2 and nothing steel mans your arguments for why not ETH than understanding what is happening in E2 so you can make a sound and concise, concise argument. Uh, but regardless, uh, thank you to Preston for coming on and spreading his knowledge and being super honest. Uh, he talked a lot about, uh, you know, what is the obstacles to E2 and, uh, you know, why he's optimistic regardless and uh, why he enjoys it. So uh, I, I had a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Preston's a, a super down to earth guy. I really enjoyed his commentary at the beginning of, of how he came to be working uh, at um, Prismatic. Right. And so it wasn't his full time job. He never thought it was going to be his full time job. He just had this passion, which was to help Ethereum to grow into something real. And so him and, and a couple other guys uh, started uh, this group called Prismatic, which uh, they all kind of tinkered with uh, and just worked on their own time. And then it turned out to be their their full-time position later, you know, a few more months down the line as things matured. And I think that's kind of cool. It kind of speaks to the way that, that this cryptocurrency ecosystem is supposed to work, right? Like uh, no one is going to appoint you to do anything. You just have to take the responsibility upon yourself and you get to permissionlessly enter the ecosystem and start building out a client because no one can stop you. And then that's exactly what happened. And then, and then all of a sudden, there's the, the community support comes, the community funding comes. Uh, great story. And then Preston kind of helps us out with learning about the, the technical details of ETH2, uh, the different phases, the, the, and specifically the hardware requirements. I thought that was a particularly interesting part of the discussion. Uh, but before we get into the episode, let's talk about our sponsor, Alto. You want me to do it? Alto. Alto IRA. Alto IRA is where you as a very smart and tax advantage individual goes to get tax advantages. So if you are a crypto trader and you want to pay less in taxes, go to Alto IRA and it plugs right into your Coinbase account. So you can trade all of your crypto assets on Coinbase and have Alto IRA offer you a tax advantage crypto IRA. They also do other alternative assets as well. So we're all weird in this crypto space. We all like our alternative assets. So not just crypto, not just Bitcoin is available, but gold and some other cool stuff as well. So check them out at altoira.com slash POV crypto so they can know that we sent you there. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get right into the interview with Preston Van Loon. All right, everyone, we are here with Preston Van Loon from the Prismatic ETH2 client team. Preston, you want to say hi? Hey, happy to be here. 
Thanks for coming on POV Crypto. Really appreciate you giving us some of your time. Preston, can you kind of explain, give us your background as to how you came to be in Ethereum, how you came to be an ETH2 client dev, and uh, you know how you came to be where you are today? Yeah, okay. So I'm the co-founder of Prismatic Labs, and we're building an ETH2 client. Um, but how I got started, uh, so I was previously working at Google. Um, and kind of just kind of exploring around other technologies and stuff like that. And in 2017 is when I first heard of Ethereum. So kind of later than, than a lot of people, but still, I think pretty early. Uh, so I started kind of messing around, you know, heard about this technology. My friend told me about it. He said, it's like Bitcoin, but you can run applications on it. Um, so you can do more, you know, basically do more than have peer to peer money. So it was interesting to me. I was wondering how, how how can you do that? That sounds like a really cool idea. Uh, and this was, you know, like the summer of 2017. So the price is like 200 or so. And I bought a little bit and it started going up. And I'm like, what is this? And, you know, messing around with apps and stuff. And then by the end of 2017, this is huge bubble of excitement and the, seeing the network so congested like that for the first time uh made me think like wow you know this is really cool technology but it doesn't doesn't scale for shit like we can only get you know 14 transactions per second that's not <laughs> that's not going to keep up with a you know a global scale so i wanted to get involved because you know i like building and messing around and breaking stuff uh and i was really interested in ethereum uh so i started reaching out on on different channels and I met Raul Jordan online uh, and he said to me he said hey you know I'm gonna be in New York in a couple days and I was living in New York uh, we should meet up for coffee or whatever so I said okay why don't you come by my office and we'll get some coffee and I gave him the address to Google um, so that <laughs> I don't think he even knew I worked there but we 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 met up at Google and and you know had a coffee and said you know there's this planned for the next iteration of ethereum switching to proof of stake and i'm sorry switching to yeah proof of stake and, and 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 sharding and all these things but no one's building it like we've just been doing research and talking about it so why don't we just put together a team so we we put together a team right there and just kind of did it as a moonlighting passion project just to have fun and and you know we met terrence and and nishant and all these other guys on our team and it just kind of grew more and more beyond what we expected. And by the end of uh, by the end of 2018, we were all quitting our jobs to work on a full time. And you know that's kind of how I'm here. So when you guys started decided to spin up the Prismatic team, it was more of just like a, you know we'll we'll work on this after after normal work hours right it's like a this is my hobby this is your hobby let's just work on this after after work did you at that time did you a is that a correct uh, interpretation and b at that time did you think that perhaps one day this would become your full-time job yeah exactly so we we were just working on it after work and raul was uh he was already just looking for his next um project so i think he was working on it full-time at that time or more than anybody else uh but certainly myself and Terrence and Nishat were all working full time at another at other companies, so we we're just working on it in the afternoons and evenings. And even and for me, I found the morning to be most productive. So I would actually wake up three hours before work 
and do prismatic stuff and then go to Google and think about it all day and then come back home and like write it up. I couldn't do work at Google uh, for this, obviously, but I I really never imagined that it would get to this point. We kind of thought like, you know, oh, we really like the Go Ethereum project and we're really interested. So it, all we really wanted out of this was just to learn and like to build and give back and kind of make it better. Um, and we, yeah, we never thought that we'd get funding. And then when the EF said they were giving out grants we applied and we got approved and we're like wow okay so there's some real money there and then there was the ethereum community fund where they gave us a, a, some money and they flew flew two of us to japan to accept it and that was really cool so we're kind of like you know in this unique spot that we've already like and this is just like march so it's only been like three months and we're already, all this stuff's happening um so we knew that what we were doing was going to be important. It was going to be cool and that people were recognizing that. And it just, yeah, it kind of snowballed from there. Um, so am I, am I correct to say like uh, you guys were kind of struggling to find funds and we're all working full time and uh, Vitalik threw you guys a bunch of ETH. Is that the right story? Yeah, that's, that was the, uh, the YOLO fund, the YOLO, fun, the YOLO yep. day. <laughs> um so like we had received some grants and and it was like on the order of uh like a quarter million or something like that and that was funding a lot of the um work and it was paying Raul to to work full time and myself and Terence and Nishant to just kind of work half time or whatever part time or whatever after hours uh but it wasn't enough to take four people full time i mean that's we would have run out of money in in one quarter um, so I said, uh, I think Amin um, from Spain Chain was on Twitter and he was saying, you know, why why aren't we throwing more money at the problem? Like, or, or what's holding up ETH2 or why isn't it going faster? And I just put it out there. I said, you know what? We have to spend 40 hours of our week um, at our employer to keep the lights on at home or some, you know, something along those lines. Like, so it's like our biggest distraction is we have to go to these companies that we don't really and go work on stuff we don't really want to work on. Because it's you know keep keeping our lifestyle the same. I live in New York and Terrence in uh, San Francisco, and we couldn't just jump jump out and because we never thought we'd get money anyway. And now you know we didn't think there would be more or just sort of whatever. And then uh, I was making dinner and my phone starts kind of blowing up, uh, and I see that Vitalik had sent a thousand ether to our our multisig uh, Prismatics uh, wallet. And I just was like blown away. And then, then he did it t- two other times that day. He gave it to Sigma Prime and he gave it to Chainsafe. So he took his own money, um, not the EF's money, and kind of was like putting, signaling that this is, again, a big deal and that he's willing to pay for it. So that was cool. So, I mean, kind of on that tip, like obviously there is a lot of like crowdsource excitement and funding going on around projects in the ethereum space um i think it's pretty undeniable just the community around that like how i guess this could be towards you both you and david like how do you feel about the sustainability of that culture like can that culture scale um as ethereum grows because uh, i would say like that's something that you know i think is optimistic but i don't think is like something you can count on forever yeah so um i mean part of this is just a direct uh directly a, a result from like the ICO pre-mine, right? Like Vitalik had a bunch of ETH because he had he had it from Genesis, right? That probably came from the, the Genesis block 
or a couple of transactions later, right? And so, and it went straight into the hands of the developers who are building out the commitment to um, build out ETH 2.0. I do think over time that it's good that this these funds are finite, right? Like Vitalik didn't press the mint button, he pressed the transfer button. Um, and uh, so like, it's, it's good that the, this funds will run out, but also at the same time, it's, it's critical that these funds actually existed and were available for teams like the Prismatic team and the, and the ChainSafe team so that they could do their job that was described in the white paper. Um, so um, uh, I, to your point, CK, I, I do think that at that point, at some point in the future, that that's not going to be the way that it is. But the hopes is that the with the pre-mine, with the, the ETH initial funds, that they can get Ethereum into the state that it uh, has always been promised. And that's what I see happening here. Also, just to add on before Preston jumps in, like I'm even talking more like broadly, like, okay, so obviously the EF, Vitalik, whatever they have their coins, they can chill out stuff, but there's also Gitcoin. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Like, what do you think, what's your like assessment of like the altruism that's kind of embedded in the ETH community right now? And is that sustainable? Yeah. You know, the, this, the, the, the whole funding thing has been uh, interesting because this is, you know, a decentralized platform and it's not using traditional fundraising. Like we didn't go to VCs. All the money we've raised so far has been, you know, a grant. So, uh, you know, no equity or anything in exchange, just the promise that we're going to do what we said we would do. Um, and I think the, the pre-mine funds, I mean, that's what, you know, like David was saying, and that's what this is intended for. It's intended to build the platform and kind of fulfill this promise. So if, even at the beginning when ETH launched, there was always this plan to go to proof of stake. Like we never were going to stay on proof of work forever. So I think that ETH2 is part of the promise that was uh, sold for the pre-mine. So that's great. Um, but yeah, like they were saying, it is, it is finite. So there are, other solutions being uh, looked at for how do we pay? How do we pay to maintain ETH? Like who who pays for that? And th- you know things like Gitcoin grants have been really, I think, a success. Um, and then there's been talk about you know what if we took one guay out of every transaction and threw that into a dev fund? Uh, ideas like that. It's <laughs> it's kind of hard to. Why, why don't you like that, CK? CK is giving the thumbs down if you missed that person. Who who decides yeah. where that fund is allocated? That is the main problem. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of in the same uh, spot you are today with the uh, with the EF, except that uh, this would be the protocol level thing. So it could be a DAO, but those aren't perfect either. Um, I don't know. I didn't say it's a good idea. I just said it's <laughs> a idea. Yeah, it's not my idea. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's interesting for sure. I mean, it's it's an important conversation, right? Because like, but I think to what you're really trying to get at, Christian, is like this f- funding is not going to be in five, ten years of Ethereum's future. Like the funding that we see today is not going to be the funding that we see at that that point in time. Like there is a lot of. Or it could be way more. Sure. Yeah, but that those funds need to come from somewhere, and like the fact that you know, in the grand scheme of things we're not that far away from the moment of the ether presale, right? Like it's only five years. Uh, and so like, we're still in that context. Uh, and so there is a lot of altruism. There is a lot of gifting. There is a lot of Gitcoin grants. Like the reason why Gitcoin grants works is because it's totally subsidized. Like the fund matching doesn't come from nowhere. Like somebody's giving away that money. Um, I do expect that at some point there's just less money to give away because this thing hits maturity. Okay. 
moving on into into subjects. Preston, we initially reached out to you uh, kind of in the wake of this uh, AMA that happened on Reddit where uh, caused a lot of bunch of a hubbub on Twitter and and then the block wrote this story about how like, you know, ETH2 re, uh, core dev says that ETH phase one isn't going to launch until 2021 and everyone gets upset. Uh, and so kind of wanted to hash, hash that out really quick. Um, so in the last like with the first initial timeline projection, and I know that these are all nebulous timelines given given by perhaps not a complete consensus of all devs, but like the first initial timeline that we got was Q1 2020. Um, which came came and went, and then it was kicked down the road. Everyone kind of saw that coming, expected it. Um, uh, but the the potential, the mention of perhaps that that phase zero isn't going to launch launch until Q1 2021 was apparently a bit of a blow to the community. Can you kind of talk about like what's been going on with phase zero and and why what's been kicking that can down the road for so long? Yeah, sure. So, like, what were the big obstacles? Yeah, yeah, sure. So. Uh, maybe it's worth looking back at sort of the the, the whole history of ETH2 since uh, Prismatic started working on it, at least. That's kind of when I, I got involved in the beginning of 2018. And that, at that time, it was just uh, research notes, maybe a couple of posts on uh, ETH research. Uh, but it hadn't taken its like anything like its form it is today. Uh, so at the beginning of that time about of, of that year in march or maybe in april we all got together in taipei taiwan and kind of talked about the spec uh what it's gonna what it might look like and i think at this time we're still like in a pretty heavy r&d phase so everything we were working on was experimental and then just a couple months later in the middle of the summer in the middle of the year uh there was another meeting in i think in berlin and it, it ended up with a complete rewrite of the whole spec. Like everything's redesigned and, and totally different. Uh, That's where sharding and staking got integrated into the same um, same rollout. Is that is that what happened then? Yeah, that's when we... Because at the end of 2017, they were testing uh, the research... Uh, if the Ethereum Foundation research team was testing out proof of stake. So switching just switching ETH to proof of stake instead of proof of work. And realizing this is going to be a pretty volatile upgrade, and so with sharding, we just decided why not do one painful upgrade instead of two. I was to merge them together. This all sort of makes sense. And so that happened in the middle of the year. Um, so we spent the next like six months, uh, the remainder of the year, kind of experimenting again uh, and working and keeping going. And then uh, I don't know in the middle of 2019 it had taken sort of its first final form uh the first code freeze we had was was in the middle of the summer and i think that's when we said oh yeah it's gonna launch in q1 2020 right because we got six months to test it out and then we'll launch sometime in the beginning of next year after the holiday um but then the spec was unfrozen and then radically changed again over the next six months. I think after DevCon, uh, we went from the idea that we would do 1,024 shards uh, to simplifying it to just 64 so that we could get uh, you know, crosslinks happening faster. And we were cons- there was some concern about cross-chain cross- transactions and things like that and the taking too long. So starting out with 64 shards would still solve the majority of our scaling issues uh we didn't really need a thousand twenty four to start 
Um, so that kind of pushed it back the first time. That was a big delay. And then through the beginning of this year, you know, we've been working on um, working on the spec, and it's sort of uh, fi- second final form. It's, it still hasn't been frozen yet, but but all of the commitments from the foundation and all the client teams, we're not going to change it. Uh, it's just a few like networking parameters and things that they're they're trying to lock down, and then we'll launch with that later this year. But when there was the AMA, we had Justin Drake. Um, kind of taking his point of view of where everything stood and sort of what was left and he listed out three big things so we need a um a proof of uh, uh sorry uh, a multi-client testnet with multiple clients running for two to three months we need to have an attack net which is like a, a incentivized um single client network where if you're able to take it down then you get a, a bounty if you can prove how you did it and stuff like that so it's a, kind of like a, a bug bounty in a sense you could break this thing and then the third thing but the attack net runs for two or three months as well in parallel and then the third thing was like an ef sponsored bug bounty so they would actually put you know say hey if you can find a, a critical bug we'll give you 500 bucks or something if you find a severe one, they'll give you five thousand or something like that. Uh, just making up those numbers, it might be more, it might be less. I don't know. Um, but that also would take two or three months. So all these things in parallel. If you look at it, and they're all running right now, it's we could be getting a green light uh, in three months. But I think what uh, uh, Justin was being a little bit uh, careful, or maybe even pessimistic, by padding that result. So like, okay, well. Maybe the soonest we're ready is the end of Q3, the beginning of Q4, but then you have like uh, all these U.S. holidays and global holidays that get in the way. So you have like Thanksgiving and, and uh, you know, this is the end of year holidays. So basically Q4 is like the least productive quarter of the whole year. So this is, oh, you know, since we're probably going to be delayed a little bit, let's let's target January 3rd, which is Bitcoin's birthday. and And this is... People were particularly sensitive because it's already been delayed, and in fact, Justin's already made this claim before that we're going to do it on January third without talking to anybody about it. He just kind of blurts it out. Um, and since he's on the research team and sort of one of the lead guys, uh, we some people take that really literally. Like, and we found we we were surprised to hear January third again, and I think everyone in the even people participating in the AMA were surprised. Uh, but yeah, I I don't share that point of view. Like I think that we'll have all these things done by the end of three, and then we're gonna just be, you know, doing uh, release testing and secondary audits and things like that for the remainder of the year. But I'm really confident it's gonna launch in 2020. So I mean, outside of the actual AMA, what I think is even more interesting is the display of governance, if you were to say. Um, that we saw over social media and Twitter in the, I guess it was like the week following. Um, but it sounded like the, what we know of the Ethereum community said that they weren't okay with that um, timeline. Uh, and then Justin came out saying, hey, we're going to make it happen. And Vitalik responded under saying like, you know, maybe it's not as many clients as we wanted, but uh, we'll get something going for sure. So like what, I guess, what's your reaction to just, seeing that chain of events uh first of all i like i get it i get justin's thinking here um the e2 genesis date is going to be 
very symbolic in the history of E2. And aligning that with Bitcoin is kind of like a, a, a tribute to Bitcoin as like we all started with Bitcoin and then Ethereum came out of that. So if we could align it and do it on the same date, that would be cool. That would be really cool. Um, and and if it turns out that E2 is delayed and we're talking about like December 26th versus January 3rd, like maybe it's worth delaying one week just to get this cool cool date but if we're talking about two months like we're not going to delay it artificially just because it's a cool date um and i like being so involved working with all the other clients um i'm pretty confident that we're going to have at least two and probably three pretty stable clients to choose from for users uh so i like i get why he said that and, and what it was and justin drake's awesome uh but I think it wasn't it wasn't discussed with anybody, and we could have it wouldn't have been such a big a big fuss if we just talked about it in a Cordell's call or something. <laughs> yeah. like that. It's it's kind of hilarious how this turned in how and why this turned into like uh, a bunch of hubbub. Um, so so my next my next question for you, Preston, is who or how really decides at the end of the day when Phase Zero launches. Like, how does this decision actually manifest? Yeah, it's a good, uh, good question. And like, the the true answer is is the people putting in their ETH in the Genesis are the true deciders. Because we could put the contract out today and say, "Here's our code." I'm not confident it's going to work, but you can do it, and so they can launch it. They're the only ones who can launch it. I don't have. I don't have enough ETH to launch ETH two. I don't think Vitalik does. Like none of us do. So, um, or maybe he does. I don't know. I don't know what he's got or anybody's got. But the point is, like, it, it's it's a combination of the signal from the developers, uh, the signal from the EF. So actually deploying the deposit contract and calling it canonical and like having this proof that this is the right one, uh, and then. The signal from our auditors, the security auditors, saying like, "Look, we went through everything, and it's it's safe to use. And here's some best practice guides, and and getting things set up. You know, that's going to be what's driving it forward. So, yeah. So it's just a matter of the code being made public, and then a contract address being made available on Ethereum one, and and then, hmm. Yeah, and then and then a bunch of ETH gets when deposited, ETH deposited, and and then and then there needs to be one sort of uh, I think it's two how, two million. How many though? It's uh, sixteen thousand eight hundred and something validators, uh, multiples of thirty two, okay. uh, so that's what you need to start it. Um, but no one's gonna mm-hmm. and, and all mm-hmm. the code's open source. But no one's gonna do that if they're not mm-hmm. confident that it's ready. So, right, of course. Yeah, okay. it's a combination of all okay. that. Okay. So, so yeah, it's so the client teams make the code public and then someone runs the code using a contract address on Ethereum one. And then there's some sort of determination that's like, okay, this network that is being run by this group of people is what we are going to call Ethereum two. And then that's the thing that connects to the Ethereum one deposit contract. How does that work? Yeah. So what will happen like the timeline and and plan for E2 launch is that first of all we'll put that deposit contract out there or at least at least we'll use something like create2 
where we know what the deposit contract address is going to be, but we, we're not going to put anything, actually put anything there until we're ready. And so what we can do is on the client teams is uh, bake in that, that address, that configuration, and get everything ready. And then we can you know, tag a release, say this is the version one software that we're ready to launch with. It's not beta, it's not alpha, um, it's ready to go. And then well, someone's going to launch the deposit contract, and now we have the both of the pieces of of both the pieces we need to get started. So we have we can launch at that point. So part of uh, Ethereum is that we have multi clients, right? So when uh, you we when we when phase zero rolls around and it's time to get started, what clients do you think are really going to be present and available and ready? And, and, and show a strong force and, and what, what client team. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, part of Ethereum's ethos is having, having multiple options for, for uh, clients to use. Uh, Bitcoin has multiple clients as well, but, but really there's only one that most people use um, the main Bitcoin core client uh, where Ethereum has been, you know, much different, uh, especially because they have, they, they like to move faster and, and sometimes break things. So having a fallback option is good for the network so that, that there's no like uh, long-term effects if there is an issue. You just switch over to your or to another implementation that doesn't have that bug until your favorite one can fix it. And then, you know, you're good to go. You can still transact and do whatever you want. And in the event of like a, a consensus bug, um, you know, if there are three options, and only one has this bug, well, the chain will continue on because the majority is using the correct implementation. So that's kind of like, you know, why we really want to have so many. And right now, when we look at the multi-client testnet for Altonia, we have, um, Altona, we have three or four main players in there right now. We have, we have uh, Lighthouse from Sigma Prime, Nimbus from Status, uh, we have Teku from from Consensus, and then we have the Prism client from Prismatic Labs. Um, all of these look like great contenders to go to to mainnet. I can't really sp- comment on their like specific readiness because I just haven't been following their their like project management or anything too closely. Um, but Prism is definitely going to be one of the ones on day zero, uh, and probably most of these other clients. I, I I haven't heard feedback where people are worried about. Uh, their client not being one of those four not being in the initial group, but uh, you know we're all kind of at various phases of being ready or or how our audits are going or whatever. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. If if I recall correctly, there was almost perhaps like eleven clients at, at one di- client teams working at, at one different point. I don't know how many have dropped off or if they're still working. They don't all need to be ready by phase zero. We just need several to be ready by phase zero, and the rest can like catch up later. But also at the same time, we do kind of expect a lot of consolidation, right? A lot of convergence. If you had your best guess. Um, how many client teams do you think that Ethereum will like converge upon in the very long term, like five plus years? And and if I don't even know if that's a fair question to ask because I'm not technical enough to know. Um, but also, if if I could layer in another question, what are these? What are the niches going to be that these client teams kind of fill and are make themselves distinct from from others? Yeah, I think that uh, I mean just kind of what we see now that they're in in four or five years. 
you know, after E2 has been around for a while, uh, there will probably be maybe five clients that that are really continuously being maintained. Um, at one point, I think there were as many as as eight at the, at a time when when we had this retreat, uh, sort of this retreat where all the client teams got together and we got to sync the clients for the first time. I think we did seven at a time, so we had seven like functioning clients at that time. Uh, some of them since then have either dropped out just for lack of interest, or and some of them have merged together. Uh, but um, yeah, I think there'll be probably five going forward. So maybe I can talk about some of some of the clients and and what their uh, niche or or target uh, audience is. So uh, I'll start with Nimbus. Um, they've written their client in the Nim programming language, and I, they're targeting. Uh, really small devices so they want to run on you know, phones and and things so low power devices and things like that so cheap cheap hardware that you probably already have lying around your house uh, i think that's kind of their goal um whereas you know prism and and lighthouse are kind of targeting uh, a more general audience so maybe you know you can run on a raspberry pi which is still pretty cheap hardware but but not quite as you know something you probably didn't already have or maybe you want to run on your laptop or build a specific computer for it. Or maybe you want to run uh, like a fleet of these because you're a superpower user or a, a sticking pool or something. Um, Nimbus and, and these other ones can do that too. But uh, and, and especially the one from Consensus, uh, tech, uh, Teku, is you know enterprise focused. So those are really you know they're they're historically been uh, targeting for you know big banks or big financial industry or, or whatever enterprise companies uh and then we have you know uh, other groups like uh sigma uh, not sigma prime but the chainsafe where they have their their implementation lodestar which is written in javascript and what they're focused on is a lot of like web tooling so do you want to interact with uh beacon chain and do you want to validate uh using javascript maybe from your web browser or from you know wherever JavaScript runs, which is pretty much everywhere now. So it's a combination of hardware differences and hardware specialization, and then also code uh, specialization. Are those really the main the main differentiators that that separate out um, clients? I think so. Yeah. So I mean, I guess I, I kind of have two questions for you. I'll start with saying, like, how realistic is it that uh, you can run a full? Ethereum node on a phone because I mean right now that's not realistic at all. Like, what's different with ETH two that even makes that uh, a remote possibility? Um, that's a good point, and I was just thinking about this today actually. Uh, phase zero, so Ethereum is rolling out in multiple phases, where phase zero is just the proof of stake, the proof of stake layer, so it's no shards and and no contract execution or anything like that. So it's pr actually pretty easy to run, easy on your resources. So it, uh, for something like that, it's you know not not out of the question. You could use your phone uh, or so, like some old Android phone or whatever tablet you get laying around. Uh, but as we go to these future phases where there's actually you know you have to sync these shards and you're finalizing on a lot of data, and then of course when there's contract execution. Uh, your resource demand goes up, so maybe then it's not really viable to run on on those um, types of hardware. But actually, if you look at the some of the um, 
like chips and stuff they're putting in phones these days like they're actually pretty pretty good so where is the limit uh with that i'm not totally sure is it a good idea probably not but but at least you have that option if that's something you want to do and then I guess on I so I would want to get into like what what's uh, prismatic optimizing for like when you guys are going into designing your uh, your client like what are you guys focusing on? Yeah, so so we're focused on mostly on the everyday users. So I, when I think about users in E two uh, in terms of validators, I think there's a couple of buckets you can consider. You have the bucket of people who wants to run everything themselves so they want to run all their hardware they want to they want to put it in their bunker or whatever they want to do it in their house uh so so we try to make prism really easy for those people to use them to monitor it uh to understand what's going on so we have a lot of documentation things like that uh i think there's going to be another bucket of people who want to do run their solution uh entirely in the cloud or partially in the cloud uh because it's easier to to keep that infrastructure online, you know, data centers typically don't go offline too often, so it'd be probably better than running in your apartment. Um, and then there are users that want to connect to uh, a staking pool and and either have that that staking provider or that service provider run all some or all of their infrastructure. Um, and maybe maybe that's a custodial solution if if that's what they like. Um, we're you know we're targeting those users that want to run everything themselves up to the staking providers themselves and kind of helping them understand how to how to use uh, Prism and and make it secure and and how it works and all these things. Um, so yeah, we're kind of targeting everybody uh, everybody with with uh, some sort of modern hardware modern modern device. I guess just to stick on this one more point, uh, how would you characterize like modern hardware? Like what? Like I have a I have a 2019 MacBook Pro, 15 inch. It's a it's a beast for what it is. Yeah. Like, is that enough? Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. So if you look at the, um, I'll tell you a secret here. If you look at the specs for Prism, and then you look at the specs for for World of Warcraft Classic. Uh, they're actually exactly the same because we copied it. We copied it from <laughs> from their website. So if you can run that like that game, which is kind of pretty old, right? It's from you know 2003 or something like that. Uh, then you can run this software. I mean, it's it's not that it's not that hard. If you got two cores or f- four cores, and you have eight gigs of RAM, and and some kind of decent hard drive, then you're going to be fine. What's going to be the biggest bottleneck that's going to prevent people from running a node? Is it bandwidth? Is it is it RAM? Uh, what's what's like the most constricted bottleneck? And are, are all of these bottlenecks generally about the same size in relation to each other, or not? Right. So at the moment, the the biggest bottleneck for syncing the to the head of the chain has actually been the CPU. So we're use we're, Ethereum two has a lot of lot more signatures. Uh, it seems like a lot more signatures than ETH one, especially because we have you know sixteen thousand, almost seventeen thousand validators to start, and they're all signing everything every you know they're all voting at least once every six and a half minutes. So that's actually a lot of data to, to a lot of signatures to verify. Uh, even when you aggregate them together. Which is a clever way to to verify at once instead of verifying multiple. 
you're still using a lot of resources. So right now we're trying to optimize that to be faster and faster. And there's, since there's not a lot of data in the beacon chain, there's almost no data. Your disk speed, which has been the big problem for, for Ethereum 1, is not an issue yet. Uh, and memory is uh, not too bad either. There's not a lot going on. Not a lot you want to keep in memory. So most implementations are keeping at, at, or, at or below one gigabyte of, of RAM uh, in, in in practical use in, in some of these test nets, and some of them are going up to you know six gigs of RAM. But like I said, if you have eight gigs, which you know most uh, laptops or computers, they have that. Um, and I'm actually running Prism on one of our test nets with a, a four gig RAM Raspberry Pi, so even that's you know feasible, and that's been that's been fine. So after phase zero comes phase one, and then phase one point five, and then phase two. Um, the the Ethereum bull in me, the optimist, says that okay, um, there's this concept of compounding progress, where like now that we have phase one like locked in and rolling, phase one, one point five and two are um, you know we you just have momentum, right? Um, so is that a fair opinion? Do you share that opinion? And then also, what are the big obstacles that we still have to get over that that may prevent or may result in in delays? Um, in delays in phase phase one and phase two so yeah i mean the idea of having this phase rollout means that we could start launching things a little bit faster because uh, if if we waited until everything was completely done it would take just take forever and maybe never even get done so using this phase rollout approach is really smart uh we're starting with phase zero which is just the beacon chain just the validating part of it just proof of stake basically basically what taking Casper and and launching it alongside Ethereum 1. Uh, and then with phase 1, you know, the, this can actually be implemented in parallel, so, so we don't actually have to wait until phase 0 is completely launched and the chain started and all that stuff to start working on phase 1. Um, and phase 1 is actually technically pretty lightweight. I mean, there's not all the building blocks are there. We just kind of have to connect things together. Uh, to get the shards uh, set up and all the, you know, subnet topics and getting these nodes communicating about shards. Uh, so, so that's going to go. I think once we get phase zero launched, things are going to start moving pretty quickly. Uh, likewise with phase, you know, one point five, it's something that we can do in parallel. And likewise with phase two, a lot of the pieces that we need are actually already done. It's kind of just putting things together and testing it and getting it all buttoned up. So do you think, um, how, how would you compare uh, phase zero development to what you are thinking phase one and phase two development will, will look like? Um, like how will that change your guys' interactions with the other client teams, with your own internal team? Like what's going to be the big shift? Yeah, so part of, part of the shift that happened in, internally with Prismatic is now we're going to be monitoring and you know supporting uh phase zero while we work on phase one uh but uh, terrence on our team has been implementing phase one for a few months and based on what i've seen from that it's already almost done i mean it's really not a whole lot of work uh in technically but it needs to be done correctly so it takes a long time to get it well tested and things implemented um with proper proper you know having all the infrastructure to make sure we're not breaking things 
and then we'll want to revisit with our you know security auditors and try to find any any glaring uh, risk or issues with that. Uh, so yeah, I think you know the, the, in terms of communicating with other teams. So we've always been we meet every two weeks online and we're always uh, in, in each other's uh, Discord channels and constantly communicating and sharing ideas. Um, while it is like a competitive space, it's uh, because we're all sort of doing the same thing for the same market share. It is like a really just great group of you know people to work with, and we're also we're all working together. We all have the same goal: is to get it to launched and to make it make this all a lot better. So it's, it's uh, because we're all sort of doing the same thing for the same market share. It is like a really just great group of you know people to work with, and we're also we're all working together. We all have the same goal. Is to get E2 launched and to make it make this all a lot better. So, so there's al- always one aspect of E2 which has generally escaped my comprehension, which is like the difference and importance of EWASM versus the EVM. Um, so, my understanding of the EVM is like it's very this very stable, dependable way to write code, but it's also causes developers like a bunch of frustration and pain for some reason. Uh, and then EWASM is supposed to be this. A uh, new way of 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 um, writing and deploying code to the Ethereum blockchain that is more generalizable, allows for more de- developers that aren't uh, you because the uh, the EVM. I'm I'm kind of out of my wheelhouse here with with trying to explain what these things are. Can you explain the EVM and then also why and where Ewasm comes into play? Yep. Okay. So Ethereum runs everything inside of a virtual machine. And that's what the, what EVM stands for, Ethereum Virtual Machine. So with that, you know, you have the software that executes uh, low-level operations. So like move this bit there, add these two numbers together, uh, machine-level language that executes predictably in the virtual machine, meaning on my device versus your device, different chip architectures, they're all going to execute the same in this virtual environment. Uh, that's great, except that now none of the existing languages that are out there know how to compile to the, these opcodes, know how to translate their high-level language to this machine-level language. Uh, so then we had to build things like Solidity and then Viper and other kinds of languages specific to Ethereum, which you know may have bugs or issues or a learning curve and people are wondering like oh i wish i could just use my favorite language like python which is how viper came around because they wanted something like python uh but with the web assembly so with wasm uh any high level language or modern language that supports compiling to to Wasm with the with the Wasm backend, you could use, in in theory use that to write contracts. So you could be writing contracts in C plus plus or in Java or really anything that has a LLVM backend for for Wasm would work. And that brings you know just opens up a, a lot more doors, um, a lot more opportunity for developers to to use existing code that's out there and to also use existing languages that are more mature and that they're familiar with. So it, it allows Ethereum to become like more integrated into the world of software and computer science that's already developed, right? Like there's plenty of developers out in the world who know a bunch of languages. And so EWASM allows uh, Ethereum to kind of reach those people without a, too much of a learning curve. 
while also being able to access all the infrastructure that's supporting these new, uh, these old uh, software langu languages. And the idea is that that just makes development on Ethereum go faster. Like everyone can be an apt developer on Ethereum because they're already an app developer, you know, for wherever, right? That's, that's the whole goal. Yeah, exactly. And so where does eWASM fit in the rollout of Ethereum 2.0? Like where does that plug in? Yeah, that comes around in phase two. So after we bring in the shards where all the data lives, we can then start using that data in a meaningful way. So having a state, the state of Ethereum. Um, and since we have multiple shards, we can have multiple states. And that's sort of this parallel uh, sets of stairs where you get the, the whole speed up and, and improvement and scalability from E2 because we can now run things uh, more transactions per second even even if it was this like assuming uh, WASM or EWASM is the same uh, cost or performance as EVM you still get 64 times throughput you know minus whatever overhead you have for a cross charge transaction uh, but that, yeah, that really comes in once we've once we've started bringing state and things like that into Ethereum. So, do you think that people, uh, you know, approximately half a million ETH is going to reliably migrate onto ETH two even before any sort of programmability is available, and why? Yep. Yeah. So, I think the well. The only people who are going to migrate over before phase two are people interested in becoming a, a validator because there's not anything else you can do at that time. You don't need uh, ETH. To, there's like nothing. There's literally nothing else you can do. Like you could put data on there, but you might not even have to pay anything for that. Uh, so you might, you know, if you're transferring ETH to ETH two at that time, it's just to be a validator. And the reason you want to be a validator is because the protocol is incentivized you to do so you earn uh rewards for for your participation and your costs are you have fixed costs which are relatively low at least compared to proof of work you don't you don't really need super expensive hardware you don't need uh you know asics or any gpus or, or graphical cards or anything like that you just use your existing uh computer or you can get a 200 dollars computer or something like that it would be fine well you um, need expensive eth or potentially yeah, expensive. it's true. Yeah, you do, you do need thirty two uh, ETH to start at, and at the current price, that's I don't know eight and a half thousand or so uh, US dollars. Seven seven point two. Okay, it's gone down since the since the Twitter crypto scandals um, scams. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean I, that's really your biggest upfront cost, I guess, is the the collateral. Oh, well, also the risk, right? Because once you transfer your ETH over, it's not fungible with uh, ETH1 ETH. Yeah, so you risk, you know, your opportunity cost is you're not able to exit if you really wanted to. So it is kind of a, a longer term commitment. You're going to, because eventually everything is going to go over to ETH2, right? Everything will migrate over is the goal. So if you opt in early, you can start earning these rewards and earning ETH with your ETH and, and having to do minimal work to do that. Uh, but yeah, there are risks, like opportunity risk, or if uh, if ETH2 blew up in a bad way, then we'll have to do some some like recovery hard fork to, to refund everybody 
and that would just be a mess. I mean, it's not going to happen, but there is a way out if, if, if there were something bad to happen, we could just we could fix it. I mean, it wouldn't. It'd be bad, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. The plans for a two-way bridge have been totally scrapped, right? Uh, as far as I know, the plan is still to go forward with just the the one-way bridge. Um, you know, because it's simpler to do, and we're we're mm-hmm. thinking that the time between uh, Genesis and Phase Two is not that far. I mean, it is. It feels like it would be a long time, maybe a year or two. Uh, but like, in, like in terms of how long it took us to do Phase Zero, it should not take it as long because all most of the pieces are already there. Um, Preston, thanks so much for coming onto the show. It was really informative getting to pick your brain about these very nuanced topics uh so thanks for answering our questions uh for those or i guess for our audience where can they find you and who do you want to hear from yeah i'm uh preston underscore van loon uh, on twitter that's my twitter handle uh you can find more information about prismatic labs at our website prismaticlabs.com from there there are resources on how to learn more about eth and we really want to hear from people who are interested in staking ETH or really people that just have questions about it. Because uh, one of the biggest things we've been doing besides you know, building the product is trying to bring around better education around it. So uh, go, talking to, to podcast people like you guys are doing presentations. We really like to do that, to share the knowledge. Uh, so we want to hear uh, what, what questions you have where you can't find the answer. So reach out to me on, on uh, Discord or Twitter, or anywhere. Um, you can find me. I'll be happy to talk to you anytime. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Preston. Your Twitter handle will be in the show notes, so you, our listeners can find you there. Thank you for coming on to POV Crypto. You guys can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Christian? Yep, you guys can find me at CK underscore Snarks and over at Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, Make sure to give the show a five-star rating and review. Thank you very, very much for listening.
Hey. I don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So quick note. I'm also recording on, on my side, so we didn't lose that uh, thought. But I can I can recap it if you like for you guys. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't have much. Because. So, yeah, I mean, the idea of having this space roll out means that we could start launching things a little bit faster. Because uh, if, if we waited until everything was completely done, it would take just take forever and maybe never even get done. So using this phase rollout approach is really smart. Uh, we're starting with phase zero, which is just the beacon chain, just the validating part of it, just proof of stake, basically. Basically what taking Casper and and launching it alongside Ethereum one. Uh, and then with phase one, you know, the, this can actually be implemented in parallel. So, so we don't actually have to wait until phase zero is completely launched and the chain started and all that stuff to start working on uh, phase one. Um, and phase one is actually technically pretty lightweight. I mean, there's not all the building blocks are there. We just kind of have to connect things together uh, to get the shards uh, set up and all the you know subnet topics and getting these nodes communicating about shards. Uh, so that, so that's going to go. I think once we get phase zero launched, things are going to start moving pretty quickly. Uh, it, likewise with phase you know one point five, it's something that we can do in parallel. And likewise with phase two, a lot of the pieces that we need are actually already done. It's kind of just putting things together and testing it and getting it all you know buttoned up. Yeah, so part of part of the shift that will happen in, internally with Prismatic is now we're going to be monitoring and you know supporting uh, phase zero while we work on phase one. Uh, but uh, Terrence on our team has been implementing phase one for a few months, and based on what I've seen from that, it's already almost done. I mean, it's really not a whole lot of work. Uh, in technically, but it needs to be done correctly. So it takes a long time to get it well tested and things implemented um, with proper, proper, you know, having all this infrastructure to make sure we're not breaking things. And then we'll want to revisit with our, you know, security auditors and try to find any any glaring 
um, risk or issues with that. Uh, so yeah, I think you know, the, the, in terms of communicating with other teams, so we've always been, we meet every two weeks online, and we're always uh, in, in each other's uh, Discord channels and constantly communicating, sharing ideas. Um, while it is like a competitive space, it's uh, because we're all sort of doing the same thing for the same market share. It's like a really just great group of you know people to work with, and we're all, we're all working together. We all have the same goal: is to get E2 launched and to make it make this all a lot better. So it's all good. Yep. Okay. So Ethereum runs everything inside of a virtual machine. And that's what the, what EVM stands for, Ethereum virtual machine. So with that, you know, you have the software that executes uh, low level operations. So like move this bit there, add these two numbers together, uh, machine level language that executes predictably in the virtual machine, meaning on my device versus your device, different chip architectures, they're all gonna execute the same in this virtual environment. Uh, that's great, except that now none of the existing languages that are out there know how to compile to the, these opcodes, know how to translate their high-level language to this machine-level language. Uh, so then we had to build things like Solidity and then Viper and other kinds of languages specific to Ethereum, which you know may have bugs or issues or a learning curve. And people are wondering, like, oh, I wish I could just use my favorite language, like Python, which is how Viper came around, because they wanted something like Python. Uh, but with uh, WebAssembly, so with Wasm, uh, any high-level language or modern language that supports compiling to to Wasm with, a, with the Wasm backend, you could, use, in, in theory, use that to write contracts. So you could be writing contracts in C++ or in Java or really anything that has a LLVM backend for, for Wasm would work. And that brings, you know, just opens up a, a lot more doors, um, a lot more opportunity for developers to, to use existing code that's out there and to also use existing languages that are more mature and that they're familiar with.
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that comes around in phase two. So after we bring in the shards where all the data lives, we can then start using that data in a meaningful way. So having a state, a state of Ethereum, uh, and since we have multiple shards, we can have multiple states. And that's sort of this parallel uh, sets of states where you get the, the whole speed up and an improvement in scalability from E2, because we can now run things, uh, more transactions per second, even even if it was this, like assuming uh, WASM or EWASM is the same uh, cost or performance as the EVM, you still get 64 times throughput, you know, minus whatever overhead you have for cross-star transactions. Uh, but that, yeah, that really comes in once we once we've started bringing state and things like that into E2 in phase two. Yep. Yeah. So I think the, well, the only people who are going to migrate over before phase two are people interested in becoming a, a validator because there's not anything else you can do at that time. You don't need uh, ETH. It's like nothing. There's literally nothing else you can do. Like you could put data on there, but you might not even have to pay anything for that. Um, so you might, you know, if you're transferring ETH to ETH at that time, it's just to be a validator. And the reason you want to be a validator is because the protocols incentivized you to do so, you earn uh, rewards for, for your participation and your costs are, you have fixed costs which are relatively low, at least compared to proof of work. You don't, you don't really need super expensive hardware. You don't need, uh, you know, ASICs or any GPUs or, or graphical cards or anything like that. You just use your existing uh, computer or you can get a $200 computer or something like that, it would be fine, so. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you too, you do need thirty two uh, ETH to start at, and at the current price, that's I don't know eight and a half thousand or so uh, US dollars. Okay, it's gone down since the since the Twitter crypto scandals um, scams. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's really your biggest upfront cost, I guess, is the the collateral. Yeah, so you risk, you know, your opportunity cost is you're not able to exit if you really wanted to. So it is kind of a, a longer term commitment. You're going to be, because eventually everything is going to go over to ETH2, right? Everything will migrate over is the goal. So if you opt in early, you can start earning these rewards and earning ETH with your ETH and, and having to do minimal work to do that. Uh, but yeah, there are risks like, opportunity risk or if uh, if ETH2 blew up in a bad way, then we'll have to do some some like recovery hard fork to, to refund everybody. And that would just be a mess. But I mean it's not gonna happen, but there is a way out if 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 there were something bad to happen, we could just we could fix it. I mean it wouldn't it'd be bad, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. 
as far as I know, the plan is still to go forward with just the, the one-way bridge, um, you know, because it's simpler to do. And we're, we're thinking that the time between uh, Genesis and phase two is not that far. I mean, it, is, it feels like it would be a long time, maybe a year or two. Uh, but like in, like in terms of how long it took us to do phase zero, it should not take it as long because we all, most of the pieces are already there. Yeah, I'm uh, Preston underscore Van Loon uh, on Twitter. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, you can find more information about you know Prismatic Labs at our website, prismaticlabs.com. From there, there are resources on how to learn more about ETH. And we really want to hear from people who are interested in staking ETH or really people that just have questions about it. Because uh, one of the biggest things we've been doing besides, you know, building the product is trying to bring around better education around it. So uh, go, talking to, to podcast people like you guys are doing presentations. We really like to do that to share the knowledge. Uh, so we want to hear uh, what what questions you have where you can't find the answer. So reach out to me on, on t uh, Discord or Twitter or anywhere. Um, you can find me. I'd be happy to talk to you anytime.